I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Dr. Kaufman, a well-known doctor, educator, and clinical professor turned patient. We talk all about chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Let's talk about it. going to be great. We're sitting down with uh, with a doctor. Um, Brian, please try not to make this uh, about, you know, a session where you get diagnosed with something that you're curious <laughs> about. Um, Dr. Brian Kaufman. We're joined by Dr. Brian Kaufman. And we're going to be talking about something that uh, I'm going to, I want to throw this question to you guys first. Do you, Brian, do you know what CLL stands for? Uh, no, but I can make a guess. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Uh, cytoplasmic. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Lymphatic. Holy shit, Brian. Whoa. Look out. What is these that? are big is words. That I mean, you're I'm sure. just using all the health words yeah. I know that start no, with keep these going. Letters. You got one more. CLL. Uh, I said lymphoblastic. I said, or what did I say? You said, said lim- leukemia said lim- is the said, other L word that lymphatic. I know. So there you go. Okay. Leuke- <laughs> okay. Great. Le- well, let's, let's oh, one, we'll pu- pu- jump in, Brian. <laughs> yeah. One out of three. There one we go. All right. One out of three. That now, Taylor, you got something going. What do you think CLL stands for? Uh, I mean, Brian really kind of, uh, now that Brian said all these big, smart words, I, am at a loss. Okay. Which of the three words do you think he got right? I know which one he got right. Which Which is leukemia. Okay. Okay. All right. So it's a blood cancer. Well, does C stand for cancer? Uh, no, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Brian Kaufman, why don't you jump in here and help the boys out? What does CLL stand for? So the the C is chronic. Okay. And the, uh, so you were close, Brian, lymphocytic. So ah, lymph, okay. lymph means like, you know, we know about lymph nodes, these, you know, when you get a sore throat, these glands swell up. Those are made up of white blood cells that are called lymphocytes. Cyte, C-Y-T-E is just a fancy medical word for a blood, a cell, a blood cell. So lymphocytic means uh, made up of lymphocytes. Mm. And it's chronic because there's, hundreds of different kinds of leukemias and lymphomas. Lymphoma is a cancer of the the lymph system. It can be in the blood or in the lymph nodes or in the spleen, which is like a giant lymph node. It can be other parts of the body. So CLL is a chronic cancer rather than an acute cancer, which is, Mm. you know, one of these where you see these horrible pictures of little kids and it's in a medical emergency. This is chronic, you know, it's kind of almost like diabetes in that sense. You you, you need to deal with it. You need to manage it. It's also not curable. It's lymphocytic because it's the um, lymphocytes and it's a leukemia because it's in the blood. But let me make it even more complicated for you. Yes, please. It's Let's also, go. You know, because you guys are going to be all over this. And it's also um, sometimes called CLL slash SLL, which stands, the S stands for small lymphocytic lymphoma. 
It's a lymphocytic middle word we've already got. Yeah. Lymphoma is a cancer of the lymphatic system. And small is because the cells are small. Those are actually the same cancer depending on where it is. Oh. If it's just in the lymph nodes and it hasn't spilled over into the blood yet, it's called SLL and it's a lymphoma. If it's CLL, it's in the blood, actually more than 5,000 uh, cells per microliter of blood. So they're both the same disease, kind of different stages of the same disease, just to make it very complicated. Mm. I tell my patients, my friends, that it's good because we get research dollars for both leukemia and lymphoma. We get to claim that we have two different cancers, <laughs> right, even right. though we only have the same now cancer is, is in two C different places. Is CLL the progressed version of SLL? Well, some people will have, um, great question, great question. So some people will just have SLL and it will never progress. Okay. And uh, so just you're absolutely kind of think of them as different stages of the same disease, but Many, many, the majority of people with SLL eventually develop CLL because it's actually in the blood, but it's at such small numbers that you can't detect it or you a routine mm. test doesn't detect it. Okay. And they're both managed the same way. They use the same drugs. The prognosis is the same. So the distinction is more kind of a nerdy medical distinction than mm. of any clinical mm. significance. And when, cool. when, you say, when you say chronic, I, th there's the thing about cancer. <clears throat> that I have you know learned in my lifetime, and I think that a lot of people can probably relate to this um understanding of cancer is that there is just like a never ending uh never ending variant of like variants of cancer they like cancers come in so many different shapes and sizes in the way that they that they occur in the body, and it's almost like there's just a countless number of them and but I, but I still feel as though the word cancer connotes a pretty specific thing in someone's mind that when you have cancer, people think you're going to die. Like, it's like you got cancer, cancer equals death or like extremely bad. And then I remember at some point in my life, probably in my teenage years, having somebody tell me that their mother has had cancer for 10 years, 15 years. And I thought, Ooh. wait, but how does somebody have cancer for 10 or 15 years? I thought cancer killed you, or I either thought you got, you, you got cured from cancer through treatment or cancer killed you. And so is this, right. can you tell us about the difference between kind of, like chronic and acute? Yeah. yeah. And, and kind of go a little bit deeper on how those two, th how, how a cancer can be something that can kill you quickly, or it could be in what I'm guessing is in this chronic way that you described it before that you can live with for many years and, you know, hopefully manage, you know, appropriately throughout a long period of time. So, so let me unpack some things there because you brought up some really great points. And, and the first point I want to talk about is that um, pathologists, which are the doctors who kind of define these terms and look at things under microscopes, love uh, to, you know, there's lumpers and splitters. I don't know if you've ever heard that kind of distinction. People who lump different things together and people who split different things apart. Hmm. Doctors tend to be splitters. So there's all kinds of subtypes and subtypes of the subtypes and different prognostics, you know, different uh, of all these different blood cancers. So there's hundreds and hundreds of these different blood cancers. So there, so it's, there's all these different kinds of cancers that are out there. And that's just in the blood cancer field, which is where my expertise is. But it's the same with breast cancer. There's all different kinds of breast cancer and 
what, how does it respond to different drugs? And what we say to our community is if you know one CLL patient, you know one CLL patient because everybody's treatment in the modern era is going to be different. Mm. So that brings me to the second part. So an acute leukemia is a, is a, can be a life-threatening emergency and you need to treat it. Some people, you have these white blood cells in your body and they're there to fight infection. Cancer is always clonal, okay? It's always what happens is one little cell goes bad and then it doubles, quadruples, eight, 60, and soon it's billions of cells and they take over your body. They crowd out the bone marrow. There's no room for your red blood cells, you know, to carry the, the oxygen, your platelets to do the clotting for your, to, your normal white blood cells to fight off infection. They're absolutely useless cells that proliferate like crazy. Don't listen to signals to say die. You're supposed to, it, it, it just goes crazy. And those people either get cured or die. And mm. that usually happens pretty quickly. And that can be very dramatic treatments. You hit them with heavy chemotherapy because chemotherapy kills any rapidly growing cells. So it kills these rapidly growing cancer cells, but it also, you know, you lose your hair, you, you, you puke your guts out because those are gra rapidly growing cells in the GI tract and your hair, you know, all of that stuff goes on. So in it's very radical treatment. Some people have to have their bone marrow replaced. That's called a bone marrow transplant. But these people can be cured. The chronic cancers, usually you have time. And it's, it's in, which actually can be quite nerve wracking, but it's more of a management problem uh, for people. So they don't tend to kill you, but they also tend for the most part, not to be curable. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the, I'm just gonna quit that noise making there if I can. I thought that was just the noise of um, of my realizations popping off. Every time you said somebody learned, I went learning oh, something new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the the chronic cancers can be that didn't work. They can be extraordinarily variable. So some people with CLL will have a normal life expectancy. Huh. Well, up to twenty twice. 20, 25% of CLL patients never need treatment. Oh, wow. And the same life expectancy as someone else who was never diagnosed with CLL. Some people who get treatment for CLL. So there's that group of 20, 25% who never need treatment. And this is called some we this is called watch and wait, or what patients call it, watch and worry, because you're kind of waiting for that yeah. other foot to drop. Right. But a better term for that, and one of the terms we're trying to change is called active surveillance. And you may have heard that if you've ever talked to any people in the prostate cancer world, mm. because, you know, with prostate cancer is another usually chronic cancer and not all men, oh God, I got prostate cancer. You know, we got to have a radical prostatectomy, take that prostate out or do radiation therapy or ablate this immediately. Some guys can just sit and watch it and they'll have a normal life expectancy. They don't have to do anything about it. Mm. So it's the same in CLL but it's very variable. The majority of people eventually do need treatment and it can shorten their life. Mm. So it's quite variable. Some people are dead within six months of the diagnosis, but most people at the time of diagnosis don't need treatment and many will never need treatment. Mm. So it's kind of, this, this thing happens to you, you say, so doctor, you just told me I have a cancer. It's incurable, 
and you're not going to do anything about it? Are you Ooh. really a doctor? I mean, what's going on here? I mean, right. it's every other kind of cancer. We tell women, get your mammography. You know, if we want to catch that breast cancer when it's tiny, microscopic, we can cure it. Get your pap smear. For men over 50, get your PSA so we can check that prostate cancer. Have your colonoscopy, mm -hmm. you know, at the proper age. You know, have your skin checks for a melanoma. You know, everybody's telling you all this preventive stuff. And here we're saying we found a cancer. It's very mild. We're not going to do anything about it. What? Oh, wow. yeah. Why don't we treat it when it's... And the reason we don't treat it when it's early is because there's a 20-25% chance it'll never need treatment. And all oh. treatments are toxic, even the best right. treatments. Right. Wow. Man, I, I I mean, we've been doing this podcast for coming up on eight years. And this is the first time I've ever heard like a distinction between chronic and acute cancer. I I, I think yeah. like, I don't I don't think it's ever really dawned on me that that's that's a way to look at cancers. Um, it's like like I, like I was saying earlier, it's yeah. like it's something that I he I remember hearing somebody yeah. kind of tell me at, at a point where I was <clears throat> far less smart than I am now. Not saying that I'm smart, particularly smart now, but uh, uh, in, inferior to where I am now. And I remember just, go, and, and they were also a kid and, yeah. and they just went like, I don't know. Yeah. My mom has cancer. But even, even to that point, it's like, I, I just, I would have figured it was always acute. It's just some, some, some things that are acute. I, I guess that's the, that's the definite, <laughs> that literally the definition of acute is not what I was thinking, which is, you know, some acute are like acute now and some acute are acute <laughs> down the road. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. So yeah, that is, no, that is, I, I wouldn't wild. go there. I wouldn't yeah. go there. But yeah. you know, generally, you know, chronic means that it's going to be there for a long time. Yeah. And definitely in the blood cancers, um, that That's most of those chronic cancers are not curable. So the yeah. um in the acute cancer is a crisis situation, you know. Wow. So, you know, acute anything in medicine is something that's mm. urgent that's happening mm. in the next 24, 48 hours, or emergent is happening in the next mm. 10 minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, so um there's a lot of the way a lot of these cancers now, and I, I, I would say to you, Taylor, is to start to think about some of these cancers like as a management issue, like hypertension mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. diabetes mm -hmm. or arthritis. Mm -hmm. it, you're, you're, we're not going to cure your hypertension, mm -hmm. but we're, we can control it and you can live a normal life by taking meds, by watching your salt intake, by exercising regularly. Mm -hmm. we can get the same with your diabetes. You know, you're going to, we can manage it. You know, sometimes diabetes can be cured with weight loss and mm -hmm. exercise sure, sure. and other things, but for most people not. So, you know, you think about it as a, a management issue that you're going to be dealing with it, but there's a whole psychological stress around that because you're always going, you know, is my nest test, is it going to sure. show that the cancer's taken off, you know, things like that. I've had CLL for 17 years now. So, you know, and I don't, I don't have the mild form. I have the aggressive form of it. So even though I have all the bad markers, I'm still doing great. So every, that's why I say, you know, one CLL patient, you know, one CLL patient, everybody's treatment needs to be individualized. Yeah. Wow. I, so, I, I mean, we hit the ground running here. We didn't even get a chance to like properly introduce you, Brian. Uh, right. Just for, for context for our listeners, give us give us a little bit of insight into who you are. I mean, you know, the the, the spoiler alert, it's out. You you are a CLL patient, uh, but you're also a physician. Can you give us a, a little bit of background into your history? Sure. So and, and let me also introduce the uh, the, the uh, charity, the nonprofit that my wife and I founded. So I'm I was diagnosed with uh, CLL um, um, 17 years ago. Um, and, uh, when I was diagnosed, the treatment landscape was much worse than it is now. There weren't any of these options. There was chemo, which 
didn't work very well in my particular flavor of, of uh, CLL. And um, I looked around and I was, you know, trying to talk to people and find out about CLL. And I was emailing people and my kid said to me, dad, that's so old school, set up a blog and start blogging about it. So I set up a blog, the blog became really popular, you know, tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of people were reading the blog. And, um, and because I was a physician, I could leverage that and go to the major hematology conferences and interview mm. people put that up on the blog. But the blog told the story in this kind of chronological, you know, from beginning to end. And if you wanted to find out if you were a newbie, and you didn't know what the spleen was and what it was supposed to do, it was somewhere in my blog, but you'd have to dig through. So my wife and I, my caregiver, and you can't go through these things without a caregiver, you know, yeah. right? it's so helpful to have someone to care for you. Um, decided to put together a nonprofit founded on four pillars, and it's called the CLL Society, clsociety.org. And those four pillars were to support. We had support groups running. We used to meet in each other's living room. There was like four of us to begin with. Hmm. And now we have over 40 support groups across Canada and the USA that meet on a monthly basis. Now we all meet through Zoom, you know, because of COVID and the risk of infections and things like that. So it grew from that living room. So the support was one aspect. Uh, the other was education. And, you know, I always said, you shouldn't have to be a physician and have a Rolodex of all the big names in CLL, you know, to be able to get the best care. Mm -hmm. So I wanted other people as a physician, you have this extra responsibility because you can see around the corners, you can see where things are going, what's happening. So I wanted to make sure other people had the benefits that I had. So we put together the website and we do webinars and things like that. Research, because CLL isn't curable, but we want to change that. So we're, we sponsor research, young investigators. We give them grants to study the biology of CLL and stuff like that. And then policy. There's a lot of things that, the, um, that, that we're pushing the government to make these expensive medications more accessible to people, to encourage innovation in, in therapy. Uh, and uh, into, you know, looking at taking care. CLL is a cancer of the immune system. The lymphocytes mm -hmm. are white blood cells. They make antibodies. CLL patients at the beginning of the COVID pandemic had a 30% mortality rate if they got mm -hmm. COVID. That was, oh, wow. you Jesus. know, yeah. logarithmically higher than anyone else. <laughs> we still have a much higher mortality rate. We don't form antibodies because it's the lymphocytes that make antibodies and our lymphocytes are cancerous and right. they just do their own darn thing. You know, they don't care about taking care of us. Yeah. So, um, so we founded the nonprofit and um, I leveraged that position as, you know, a foot in both camps, patient and doctor. I also have a master's degree in education. So I love to teach and stuff. So I, I leveraged that to sort of bring other people aboard and it's it's grown like a weed. I mean, so it's been, because there was this incredible unmet need. When I was diagnosed, there was nothing there for me. There was, right. you know, there was no CLL society. There wasn't real patient organizations that addressed the specific needs that I had. So I had to build it myself. So that's what my wife and I did from our kitchen table, um, you know, more than 10 years ago. And what kind of physician are you? So I'm a family doc. I'm retired at this point because I'm the chief medical officer uh, for the CLL Society, which keeps me more than busy. So <laughs> I don't do direct patient care anymore. Um, so if you guys, you know, have a, a sore toe or a mental disorder, 
I'm not going to be able to consult on that. I already Damn. have some suspicions <laughs> having talked with you for 20 minutes now. Um, but, All of uh, Brian's questions just, just left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to have to go put, elsewhere for that. Put the rash um, away, Brian. Put the rash yeah, away. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm a retired family doc, um, so a little bit of everything, you know? Yeah. I wanted to ask Brian, like when, so to go back 17 years to when you were diagnosed, um, can you tell us about, about that story? Like what was it that you first realized that, that sort of triggered you to, you know, either see a doctor or consult yourself, um, about what was going on in, in your body? Sure. So, um, you know, say the physician who treats himself has a fool for a patient. So um, I noticed, you know, I was that I had some lumps on the back of my neck and I thought, you know, maybe those are cysts or something, but they hadn't gone away. So I ordered some blood work on myself, which is a mistake, but I did it. And um, and I I and I remember getting the results back and saying, oh, my cholesterol is really good. This is pretty good. My you know, my kidney function, everything, liver, everything is good. But my white blood cells are too high. You know, what the heck is going on? And within a week, I had the diagnosis of uh, CLL. And, uh, and a week after that, I had what are called prognostic markers that we can talk about a little bit later, which suggested I had a really bad type of CLL. This was, and I'm going to get very personal, I might even get a little teary around this. And I, I know I'm supposed to keep this light, but this was just before my oldest daughter uh, was getting married. Mm. And um, I'm, um, I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, and there's actually more CLL and Ashkenazi Jews than in other ethnic groups, just like, you know, certain like sickle cell is more common. Just like Africa. cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So um, in the Jewish tradition, um, if there's a, it, and there's a teaching that if a wedding procession and a funeral procession come to the same corner at the same time, the wedding takes precedence, you know, choose life over death. So my wife and I, I got this mark, this testing results that said, you know, the likelihood of me being alive in a couple of years was maybe one in 20, you know, you know, I just had a 95% mortality rate over the next couple of years, but we kept it completely quiet. So it's this incredibly joyous event. Your daughter is getting married. You love your new son-in-law. It's, but I thought, you know, so it was a very difficult time. You know, all the kids were flying in from college and stuff to be at their sister's wedding. And, you know, my wife, Patty, and I had to keep this entirely to ourselves. So it was a very emotionally difficult time. Of course, you know, um, uh, the kids have been married for 17 years, giving me two beautiful granddaughters. And, you know, I'm still here. So, you know, everything changes, but that was an extraordinarily difficult time. Mm. The other thing I would say is when you're a doctor, they expect you to, you know, just you know, buck up and handle it, you know, right, and yeah. you know all this stuff. Mm, yeah. But I knew nothing about CLL. I mean, it wasn't like I was a hematologist. When I write my board exams, you know, for family medicine, 1% of my board exams was hematology. I mean, when you took an exam in college, did you study for the 1%? No, you studied the other 99%, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was not, you know, so I had to be a fast learner, you know, people think doctors know everything about everything, but we know what our area, what we see commonly, you ask me about mm-hmm. hypertension, diabetes, arthritis, you know, uh, preventive care. That's what a family doc knows. Hematology, zip. Mm-hmm. Did you get that? Like, did you find that there was that sort of mentality even within your, even within your sort of sphere of, of, um, of like healthcare providers? You know, like, 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 uh, you know, when you show up to the on- oncology clinic, are they like, oh, you're a doctor? Like, you, 
you know this shit. Like, is it is it ingrained within the within the culture of medicine uh, to to kind of view it that way, or, or or is it the inverse, or or was it more so just like, yeah, like like family and friends go, oh well, Brian's got this. He's a doctor. It's um, um, it's getting better in the medical community, but I I will tell you this. I, I had a complication after one of my therapies and I had to give myself um, subcutaneous under the skin injections. Mm-hmm. And the pharmacist just handed them to me and says, you can do this. Well, I've given shots to patients, you know, of course, <laughs> but I never given myself a shot. Mm-hmm. And it was like, right. okay, is anybody going to show me this? Like if I was just a normal patient, I mean, at least go over the technique with me. So I think I know how to do it, mm-hmm. but you know, so it was just this assumption, well, you're a doc, you, you got this, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, and then, you know, thank God a nurse showed me how to do it. And it was, you know, of course I could do it. Like any person, you don't have to be a doctor to give yourself a shot. People give themselves insulin shots all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was like, they just assumed that I knew what was going on. Totally. And, and, in, and in terms of the family and stuff like that, you know, they, they kind of expect me to, to monitor it and know what's going on and sort of be on top of the game mm-hmm. and stuff like that so a lot of people like to outsource their worry when they have cancer Mm. you know this you know doc you take care of that but as a physician it's hard to do that um because Mm. you know and that part of that's my own personality that i want to be in the grittiness i want every decision to be a shared medical decision i want to be part of all of that so part of that's me holding on to it too i i want to ask you brian about um to come back to your family and, and and your your daughter's wedding um, and, and like that, that decision to like, you know, not disclose what you were going through at that time, because, um, my mom had uh, bladder cancer and when she was going through her diagnosis and treatment, um, we talked, I'd say quite a bit about like the sort of like, uh, the, the, the physical steps and things that she was going through and she would explain, you know, what the next step of her diagnosis or treatment process was but she never really went into like the, the feelings of that because, and, and after the fact had told me because she wanted to protect me from, you know, experiencing that sort of emotional um, challenge that comes with it, which, you know, in hindsight, looking back on that is probably not the healthiest thing for our relationship because, you know, I want to be able to be there for her and support her emotionally and, and have like help sort of shoulder some of that, um, stress that she's going through in that moment. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, like that, that decision, I, I understand the decision that, you know, when, when she's getting married, that you're, you're not going to come in and say, Hey, you know, I'm going through this right now, but what was it like after, you know, the sort of wedding had, had settled down and then you actually had that conversation to tell her about what you were going through? So you're, you're absolutely right. CLL is, you know, can be a very much of a closet disease. And, you know, if you met me, if you bumped into me, you wouldn't tell that I have CLL. You know, there were times that I had big, massive lymph nodes and I had to grow a big Santa Claus type beard to hide my nodes. And patients saying, you get okay, Dr. Kaufman, you don't look so good. And I was anemic and I was bruising, bleeding, had internal bleeding, all kinds of complications. But for the bulk of the time over those 17 years, you know, probably for 15 of those years, I could kind of keep it hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The question is, and people don't want to tell their employer. I mean, there's some quite famous people out there who've had CLL that you don't find out until they die, actors, actresses, TV people, because they don't want to lose their gig. They're worried yeah. that their boss will won't hire them. Well, you got cancer 
And like Taylor said, they have these presuppositions. Well, they're going to be dead, so we're not going to build a series around them, you know. So um, people keep it quiet, which makes it hard. So after the wedding was over, like the kids went on their honeymoon, and the my my daughter and son-in-law went on their honeymoon, but the other kids were still there. And my wife and I met with them and told them one by one that, you know, I had this cancer diagnosis and, you know, the, the future was uncertain. And when the kids got back from their honeymoon, I told them. But it is interesting because I decided not to tell my father for a long time because I thought, you know, maybe I'll be I'll, I'll live longer than him. Why burden him with him? He, he mm. tends to get really nervous and anxious. But when I needed treatment, I needed a bone marrow transplant. You know, I couldn't keep it secret anymore. You know, so I had to tell my dad. Uh, but um, it is tricky because you you don't want every you know I'm 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 more than the cancer. You know the you when you when your CLL or any cancer is a big actor in your life, but you're still the director. You you know mm. you know and actors can go rogue and actors yeah. can improvise and do their own lines and you have to expect the unexpected, but you're still the director and get to decide what's going on here. So it's, it's tricky, you know, in terms of where to go. And it's great to have emotional support. And that's why I love the support groups, because I too, like your mother, don't want to burden my family with this. Mm. I mean, I want, I want to be a husband, a dad, a grandfather. I don't want to be a cancer patient with my family. Mm -hmm. I'm a cancer patient in the support groups. Because in the support groups, I have other cancer patients. And they say, oh, yeah, I remember what that was like when I got that first infusion and how I felt. That's more valuable to me. And I'm more valuable to them when I can tell them to expect this, or you're going to get a headache, or they're going to give you the steroids or whatever. Yeah. I don't want to talk to my wife about that all the Ooh. time. I mean, when there's a big decision, we talk about it. But you're bigger than your cancer. It's just, it's, it's you know, the more you can make it a bit part player in your life, the better off you are. You don't always get that choice, but when you can, grab it. Was that, was that your first time, like having those types of conversations with that that type of conversation with your family members um, in in your life? I, I'm imagining too, like the 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 dichotomy of like being a doctor and you know diagnosing people, um, and then and then like having to now you know, tell your own family about the situation that you're going through? Like, did that, did it give you more empathy in your, in your practice? Oh, you bet. You bet. It gives you a lot more empathy. Um, and, um, and it was, these are difficult uh, situations, but I would say, you know, in like, like your experience there, Brian, I mean, every, and I would say this to the other two of you is cancer is going to be at everybody's kitchen table at some point. Yeah. You know, at some point, a dear friend, a family member, I know all my kids, you know, even though, you know, they're my, you know, they're a generation younger than me, they all have friends who are dealing with cancer or mm -hmm. passed from cancer. I mean, you know, cancer and heart disease, that's what people die of, you know. So, um, you know, you're, everybody's going to know it's going to be part of your kitchen table conversation at some point. So you better be prepared. And as much as I like to think as a doctor, you go into medicine to make yourself immune. Well, I'm a physician. I won't get these things. But we get everything that everybody else gets, including cancer and depression and anxiety and mm. all of those same illnesses we get that everybody else gets, you know. So um Absolutely. Those were new conversations for me, awkward conversations for me, things that, you know, that most people don't deal with until they have to deal with it. And 
And I hope, you know, people don't have to deal with it, but if, you know, just to be prepared that it's odds are that you're going to have to deal with it at some point in your life. Totally. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. What were some of the what were the, some of the things that occurred over the first few years after your diagnosis that moved you that that either I guess moved you out of um, that five percent or allowed you to defy the odds of this ninety five percent mortality rate in these first few years um, and into into the sort of like the zone I guess or I guess you know, like what occurred that that changed your cancer to be something that is that becomes you know, this manageable uh, situation rather than this, this is likely going to kill me in, in a very quite short time, time frame. So I will tell you this one other story about how bad it got. I'll give you the bottom and then I'll move up to the top. So again, not having learned from my first lesson, I was on a retreat and I noticed I had some little red dots under the skin, which could suggest internal bleeding. So again, I ordered a blood test on myself. And I got a call that night and said, uh, Dr. Kaufman, uh, we have a critical lab level on Dr. Kaufman and my platelets, <laughs> which are what prevent you from bleeding internally, which should be over 150,000 were nine. This is not compatible with a long and happy life. Oh, wow. This is life-threatening illness. So I called my hematologist and I was admitted to hospital that day. And, um, you know, they were six and, you know, I got over it and then it came back again and it began this whole horrible treatment led to a bone marrow transplant and everything. And things were looking bad, but what was happening was doctors were starting to understand the biology of CLL and they were cracking that biology and no longer treating it as a rapidly growing cancer with sort of this indiscriminate chemotherapy that kills kind of everything. They were looking at targeted pathways in the cancer that the cancer cell had hijacked and become addicted to. So there, there was these oral medications that were in early development. So the reason that I'm alive today is because I was an early adopter of clinical trials. I entered phase one. Those are not, those are the really early, early trials where they're still trying to figure out the dose of the drug and how it works mm. and how safe it is and all of those things. And I've entered um, at three different early clinical trials and that saved my life because I happened to choose the right drug. And that was again, leveraging my advantage. I went to a, a meeting of the American Society of Hematology and there was this buzz about this new drug that was working and people couldn't believe it. And at this point, literally there were like 17 patients and I walked up oh, to wow. a stranger, a doctor in the hall and said, I've heard about this drug. I understand you're doing a trial. I live in California. He was in Ohio. I said, I want, I want to learn more about this. I hear you have a trial. And he said, I'll pencil you in for this. And I flew to Ohio and my wife and I moved to Ohio for three months to jump into this early oh, wow. phase one. 
trial of this drug that turned to turned out to revolutionize the treatment of uh, CLL. It, it's a it's a targeted therapy that blocks the the CLL cells from communicating with other cells. It's a really um, interesting kind of drug. So I, I was really lucky to, and that's why I'm alive. Because if that, if I'd have been diagnosed two years earlier, I wouldn't have been able to grab that brass ring. It would have been out of reach. Yeah. I would have been dead because yeah. I'd had a transplant. It failed, and my platelets were crashing. And and if I'd been diagnosed three or four years later, I never would have had a transplant. I never would have had any of that stuff. I just would have gone on this new novel therapy. You know, well, so it's all about timing. So my timing was great because they cracked the biology and they had a drug that was targeted to that. And at the time, at the time, you know, you said that there was like a few trials out there that you could have chosen from, like, were those going on simultaneously? And and was it, was it advanced enough that like, if you had maybe made a different choice in terms of like what trial you wanted to be a part of that, you know, things would have gone down a different road because maybe those, those drugs, you know, wouldn't have had the same results or, or maybe not come to market and be as effective. Yeah, so absolutely. And it's, um, there's different, um, there were, were different choices and trials, and I looked at different trials, but I looked because of the flavor of the CLL that I had, I knew that I wouldn't respond to chemoimmunotherapy. And most other trials involve chemoimmunotherapy. And chemoimmunotherapy damages your bone marrow and damages your immune system. And I already had a bone marrow and immune system that were at risk. Mm. So I didn't want to do anything that had chemotherapy in it. Mm. So I was looking for a trial that didn't have that. So that cut down a lot of them. Uh, and uh, so, and I was very excited about the early data on this. And a lot of people that I respected and had gotten to known were very enthused about it. So that's why I went after this. But yeah, you've got to make these choices. And it's mm -hmm. a little bit like a chess game because it's like, if you do this, then you then that might not allow you to do that later, or this mm -hmm. will open up that pathway, but you got to yeah. do this first to lead to that. For example, I've had a bone marrow transplant, which was my only option, you know, 15 years ago. That keeps me out of a number of trials because sure. they say, well, we don't take people who've had a bone marrow transplant. So it's like, you know, it's, you, you got to think about these things because there are, as in chronic lymphocytokinemia, as we learned, as Taylor learned, the therapies aren't curative. We don't cure it. They're what we call palliative. Palliative doesn't mean end of life, you're going to die. It means they just knock it back. Mm -hmm. Great if they knock it back. If they knock it back for 10 years, great. You know, my first trial gave me seven years taking a pill twice a day for seven years to live essentially cancer-free, free of any yeah. symptoms. I'll take that anytime, you know. I'm, I mean, I feel like what you're saying is really, like, really valuable, for for people who either are going through cancer or or for people who know someone who's going through cancer like i mean we we've talked about it at length over the last 8 years of doing this podcast but like like advocating for yourself or or having people who can advocate on your behalf is absolutely vital and i you know when i hear your story it's 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 very obvious that that you have this one this you know that this one element to your advocacy that is really going for you which is the fact that you are a physician and so there's you know maybe there's some doors that of opportunity that you've had that you know maybe most people probably wouldn't have but that aside as a physician what kind of advice would you give to patients on how to advocate for themselves once receiving 
a diagnosis like this, uh, especially when there's, you know, like when you said that, you know, uh, chemotherapy is, is not for you. And here are the reasons why. How would somebody out there who doesn't have the background that you have kind of come to these decisions, come to these places where they go, okay, I'm going to look for the route that I want to take to try to manage or treat the disease that I'm living with. And so where do I start? You know, like where, where, where yeah. do you, where do you di- take that dive in? Because it seems, I mean, even just saying it off the top of my head, it seems extremely overwhelming. And it can be overwhelming and it, it's not the path for everybody, but our motto is smart patients get smart care. So you have to make yourself smart. And if you can't mm. make yourself smart, make one of your adult children smart or make your parents smart or make your, your, your partner smart or make mm. your best friend smart, you know, but make somebody smart about this and then share in all those decision makings to know what's going on. So in, in, or in join a support group. You know, it doesn't, you know, the CLS Society has these support groups, but other organizations and other cancers have support groups and talk to other people who've been through other therapies and learn and learn who the experts are and get expert care. So, you know, uh, in CLL, because it's chronic, we say you have time, but you don't have forever. So you always have time to learn and, Mm. and find out about this and become more expert and know what questions to ask. And we have like whole protocols on this. Like when you're with the doctor, doctors are always under tremendous time pressure. Ask your most important question first. Don't ask it as the doctor is walking out the door. And the question that you were holding up and afraid to ask, you ask as they're leaving, hanging on the door, you should ask the most important question first, because likely you're only going to get to ask one or two questions. Yeah. So you get all of those things in first, have somebody with you to scribe or use, you know, use your phone to yes. record the session. Because my wife and I have left doctor's meetings. And I said, Oh, Dr. Sensen said this. And Patty says, no, he said that, you know, and it's, so have somebody record the session or take notes and stuff like that. It's critically important because you're, you're emotional when you hear cancer or you heard that it's progressed or it's relapsed, your brain goes, you don't hear anything for the next five minutes, you know? So have somebody with you can take the notes and, and write that stuff down. So there's a lot of practical advice we give people, but Generally, the more you're involved and the more you advocate, or if it's not you, your loved one advocates on your behalf, the better you're going to do. Study after study shows that patients who are involved and engaged in their care do better. What's interesting is angry, irritable patients often do better because (laughs) they're not putting up with what the doctor said. You know, people, one of the things, okay, this is just between us guys, because I'm sure nobody else is going to listen to this. (laughs) Some people will follow their doctors to the grave. Oh, I love my doctor. He's so sweet. He has the best bedside manner. But that doesn't necessarily mean he knows what the heck he's doing. Yeah, he's doing. You really want to get an expert involved, you know, so I've seen people follow their doctor to the grave, get a second opinion with cancer, see a world expert, you know, if you trust your gut, you know, um, it's the, these are, there's lots of things. I have all these different rules that I try to help people with. Mm. One of the biggest rules I have, and one of the hardest things you have to live with is you have to make life changing decisions with incomplete knowledge and conflicting advice. Sure. Wow. Like, yeah. I mean, for, you know, uh, uh, leaving your, your, your home and, and going to, I believe you said Ohio for three months. I mean, that's a, that's not a, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a massive decision to make. 
for anybody to just up, uproot their life and move to a, a completely different you know, different province or different state for a period of time. And to, to leave California in the in the winter and enter the snow in, in uh, <laughs> yeah, Columbus. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, you know, and I recognize that um, that that's a privileged cir- circumstance and yeah. not everybody gets to do that. And my sure. wife and I moved into student housing and they had a whole program to help people. Mm. You know, not everybody can uproot for three months and has the financial resources and stuff to do that. And I, I recognize mm. my privilege in doing that. And that's not so much of an issue now because these trials and stuff tend to be more um, decentralized. And one of the things that the FDA is pushing is to make sure that the trials are reaching the underserved communities. Mm. And stuff. But that wasn't the case, you know, uh, 10 years ago where you know, you really had to go to these academic centers to get. Mm. Uh, I, these I, I often, I often, I don't know how, how relevant this is, but <clears throat> it's something that is like kind of popped up in my head a few times throughout the conversation, just in terms of like the importance of making gigantic decisions with incomplete information. And, um, I've, I often think about, I often think about, uh, like life as a whole, as uh, s- similar to like a game of Sudoku where, <clears throat> where you, you you sort of like you make these decisions as like this number goes here because of like X Y Z and I've kind of I've, I've I've kind of gathered this information and you can go through a game of Sudoku and then and then and then realize that you've made a mistake and that you're it can and it can sometimes be very hard to understand like where in time did you make the first mistake that led you to where you are now mm. um, and uh, and I, I don't know that's just like that's just like an idea that has. It has mm-hmm. like kind of popped up into my head as a as we think about these, the, the, just like the the the, the giganticism of making decisions mm. when there is like all these emotions involved and financial issues and yeah. you know um, family and it, it it can be it can be extremely it can be extremely overwhelming and kind of like speaking to the advocacy and like the emotional support mm-hmm. side of things. I, to to piggyback so on that analogy though, like the Sudoku. Um, bit and 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 to um kind of uh also mention what brian was saying but smart patients get smart care it's like you know with that sudoku analogy the the more research you do the more numbers you're having filled in for you and then you can make more calculated guesses on where the numbers Mm, are supposed to go Mm. rather than just you know putting in a random number and hoping that you put Mm. it in the right spot i i would i mean with that i would love to kind of dive into um the the CLL Society's test before treat program, yeah. um, because I I, I kind of gave it a. a Let me I, just say I, one thing about that. Please, you please, gotta be, yes. You got to you got to be sweet to yourself. You know, it's like the the Dylan song. My back pages. I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. I mean, if I knew now what I knew that you know all of yeah, that stuff. Yeah. You just you. I say talk to yourself like you talk to a friend. So let's say you made a bonehead move. You know, you made a stupid move. You would never tell a friend. What an idiot you were to have this mm-hmm. you're done, you know, uh, you know, it's, you know, now you're cut off. You would never say that to a friend. So talk to yourself as gently and as nicely as you talk to someone else. And the, these, de- you made the decision based on the information you had at the time, not the information you have now. Mm. So you really got to be um, gentle to yourself mm. and understand that that was the best you made. You picked the number that was the best at that moment in time, from what you understood of the circumstance yeah. clearly mm. later. I mean, Aren't there stocks that you would have loved to have bought, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. you would have bought Apple and or whatnot, you know, I mean, who not, you know, Amazon, I mean, you know, made decisions in life, but we all make stupid moves because nobody has a crystal ball. Mm. Absolutely. 
I I would love to dive into the the uh, test before treat program. Sure. It it, it <clears throat> and in particular, I'm kind of curious about whether or not this is something that is very specific to CLL because of the type of cancer that it is, or if this is more so like an overall important thing to consider regardless of the cancer that you're dealing with. Um, so I guess, firstly, just what is the, the test before treat program? So we talked about like when you know one CLL patient, you know one CLL patient, that's what we say at the CLL Society. But what we know is that certain types of CLL, uh, uh, certain ways that we can look at the changes in the chromosomes. So you remember we have, you know, chromosomes inside, which look like two pair of pants, you know, joined together at the center. So, and there's a long arm and a short arm. Well, sometimes those arms are missing or sometimes they're duplicated. And that on those chromosomes are genes and those genes can tell the cancer to grow or not grow and stuff like that. So when they're deleted or missing or they're mutated or there's a certain maturation. So we we have this, you know, um, thing that we, you know, say test before treat at the CLL Society and what it says is that if you have, um, in CLL specifically, if you have um, unmutated IGHV or deletion 17P or mutated TP53, it equals no chemotherapy. Mm. And I won't go through all of that for right now, but these are specific markers that can be easily done by any commercial lab. These aren't fancy schmancy tests. And this makes a huge difference because it will guide what therapies and what things you should need and again, they predict for groups, not individuals. Every individual will be different. And just because you have that mark, bad marker doesn't mean your CLL will be bad. Some people with bad markers do well. Some people with good markers do bad. But you need to know that. This whole area is uh, part of what's called companion diagnostics. So for example, we know now that certain lung cancers, certain breast cancers, certain colon cancers will respond to certain targeted therapies if they have this particular gene huh. or if they lack that particular gene or if it's mutated. So, and now they can do these panels that say, oh, your cancer has this problem. It will respond. Well, doctor, I have liver cancer, but you're giving me a kidney disease, but you have the marker that's usually found in kidney disease in your liver cancer. And therefore we can use the kidney cancer drug to work on your liver cancer Whoa. because your cancer will respond because it's missing that enzyme. Ooh. So wow. this is the area that things are going directions. Things are going into. You've heard about with breast cancer, whether it's triple negative, you know, whether it responds to, you know, hormone changes and all of this kind of stuff. So that is the direction it's going in. This is more advanced in some cancers than in others and others. We don't have good markers. There's not always these companion diagnostic things that can be found. But it's getting to be more and more of an issue that like, you know, each cancer case is different, not just every CLL patient is different, but every different cancer is different and will respond differently. And you want these targeted therapies because cancer is the ultimate pirate. It hijacks the whole system yeah. and it rides these systems in the wrong direction, in a clonal direction, and it becomes addicted to these pathways. And if you can block these pathways, it kills off the cancer specifically, but it doesn't kill the normal lymphocyte sitting right next to the cancer. So, is, so is, it's not addicted to that pathway. Is this, is this, I mean, is this right now the sort of like industry standard? Like, like if someone in Des Moines, Iowa gets, gets diagnosed with CLL today and, and somebody in Los Angeles gets diagnosed with CLL today, are they, are, you know, are there, are there 
oncology clinics going to take both of them and test for these these genetic markers uh, before going through with a a you know a proper like therapy for them or or is this is this like the it's it's in the literature it just isn't really fully being practiced across across the board yet boy that's that that is so much of the heart of why we founded the CLL society because and that's why we have these wristbands for people to wear and that's why we educate doctors and we provide free consults with experts around the world uh, to help our patients because if you go to a big academic center, you know, where there's a CLL doc who wakes up in the morning, thinks about CLL and goes to bed thinking about CLL, they're going to order all these diagnostic testing, prognostic, predictive testing. But if you go to a community hematologist who sees one or two CLL cases a year, mm. they, they may not order these tests. Mm -hmm. And study after study has shown that all the numbers are increasing. They're not adequately being done in the community settings. And they're being less done, sadly, in communities of color, underserved communities. So this is a real unmet need that's out there that CLL Society is trying to address. And we're trying to do it from the ground up by educating the patients to ask their doctors to order these tests for them. It is getting better, getting better and better, uh, but it's still not where it needs to be. So this is a big push for us. That's why we have this test before treat program because right. sadly, some people were getting the wrong therapies, therapies that would be odds were very high that they wouldn't be effective. They would just damage their bone marrow, damage their immunity, and give them very temporary or minimal control of their CLL. It's huh. getting better, but it's not where it should be. It's Again, if you go to an academic center, not going to happen. But if yeah. you go to places, it still happens, sadly. It's kind of this like... it. it like this double-edged sword in the sense that like, it's so incredible how, you know, you, you get the, the, the human genome project in the early two thousands gets completed. And, you know, this like sets off this, you know, cascade of events where genetics, you know, starts to play a massive role in, you know, different pharmaceutical development and treatments and um, the understanding of genetic conditions in general. Um, and then obviously this is like, a, you know, like a prime example of that, of how someone's genetics can influence the way that they are going to respond to treatment, what treatments are going to be effective. And then at the exact same time, you know, the idea that we, that we live in this world where like communication is light speed, you know, through the internet and, and through the access to scientific information. And yet there is still that, there is still the issue of disseminating information amongst amongst like everybody, even in like some even even with like a hematologist, like somebody's somebody where this this type of cancer is in their domain, um, but because of maybe the the lack of the numbers in terms of people, that's just not something that it comes across their desk. It's something that they adopt, and uh, fascinating and you know uh, mm. kind of very you know, very un unfortunate at the at the exact same time, but amazing that we have access to things that are giving us this information mm. and that, you know, with work and to exactly what you said, the reason that you know, one of the major reasons why CLL exists is to disseminate that information, help disseminate that information, get mm -hmm. it into the hands of the people that can, you know, help people with CLL. I, I, I know this might be going down a sort of like maybe too technical of a, of a road, but well, not too. Um, but like, uh, just for context, in the, la in the last like the last couple of years, we've been we've actually we've been talking a lot about about uh, genetics and and gene mutations, 
primarily because there there was a new drug that was introduced to um, to patients living with cystic fibrosis. It's a gene modulator, trikafta. It's a, it was a big deal. And <laughs> prior to this drug, you know, there, there there wasn't a lot of conversations in my everyday life where we're covering like talking about genetic mutations and what that means and how how certain gene modulating therapies can correct the you know at the source of the mutation yada yada um and and i'm i'm on the i'm i'm on the um the test before treat sort of uh um uh how did you guys where it was like the test before treat uh one pager right and i just find this i just uh, just to just find this kind of curious i'd love to get your get you to kind of break it down for me but one of the things that it says here is um, if you have a, a mutation of the TP53 gene, that mutation specifically being uh, DEL17P, if you have that DEL17P mutation, then chemotherapy is not a good option for your CLL. So my question is, that person who lives in a small, small town, they find out they have CLL and, and the doctor whips up, you know, a, a, a regimen for, for chemo. What, what's going to happen there? Like it does, 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 does a chemo treatment make, um, make it harder to treat the CLL in the, in the long, in the long term, Or, or is it just like, it's something that's really not going to do anything. And you're just, you're just poisoning yourself at that point. So, so let me, a lot of questions here. Let me just take a step back. So the DEL stands for deletion. So we talked about, so you're missing the P stands for petite or short arm of the 17th chromosome. On that 17th chromosome is the gene TP53. And that is called the guardian of the genome. And it is a protein that goes around and says, mm, that gene doesn't look quite normal. I'm going to try to fix it up oh, I can't fix it up, I'm going to tell the cell to commit suicide because we can't have it reproducing if it has an abnormal genome. The damage is too much. Chemo works by damaging the DNA. So you can damage the DNA all you want, but if you don't have the 17th short arm of the 17th chromosome where this gene lives, or if you have that gene but it's mutated and doesn't work, then the chemo just makes the cancer cell more and more weird, but it just keeps reproducing and reproducing. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, will not, it'll kill some of the cancer cells because not every cancer cell has this gene. It's not missing this gene, but it'll, it, and in all cancers, your best treatment is your first treatment. So you want to make sure you, you really choose a smart first treatment. So having a second treatment, oh, lead to um uh will lead to a shorter duration of response a deep a less deep response so and plus it's like spring you know with for cockroaches the cockroaches that survive the spray are the most resistant right so yeah. this chemo what comes back are the toughest meanest cancer cells that are hardest to treat and now maybe they've mutated where even the targeted therapies won't work anymore or won't work as well. Ooh. So there's a lot of reasons to drop. Plus it's immunosuppressive, you know, and what we have a cancer of the immune system, one of the leading causes of death in CLL is infections and second cancers because our immune system controls second cancers. Cancers are constantly popping up in our body. Our body says, oh, that looks abnormal. Let's wipe it out. 
But in CLL, we don't do that good a job. 50% of us get skin cancers. You know, so for all of those reasons, you want to make sure you get the right choice of therapy at the beginning. Mm. Uh, so plus now we have studies that shown that these new targeted therapies lead to more durable responses. So before the argument could be made, well, the chemo, you know, it's higher risk. The chemo also damages the DNA and it can lead to second cancers itself. But, you know, if it works, then and for a small group of people, it still is the right choice. Mm -hmm. But most people, the new drugs have shown to make people live longer. So why would you give the old drug when the new drug? One of the reasons that people give the old drugs is because they're cheaper in their in the doctor's office and because of the way our insurance pays for stuff. If you get stuff in the doctor's office, you know, it gets paid differently than if you have to go to the pharmacy and have a copay. So if you've got a drug that costs fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a month, and if your copay is five percent, you know, the company the insurance is paying ninety five percent. If it's a twenty thousand thousand dollar drug, that's still a thousand dollars a month. Mm. People, and I'm not making up these numbers. These are mm -hmm. actual numbers. And if you have Medicare and you have Part D, and most people with CLL are older, like myself, you know, that's the way you go through that donut hole. The new IRA, the new changes in that will make it better in the years coming. But mm. for right now, you know, it's not a friend of mine is paying $1,100 a month for his one of his two cancer drugs. The other, he's paying $800, a month, $1,900 wow. a month. Yeah. How many people can afford $1,900 a month for two pills? Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. like, Two, two, two things. One, just a just a note on something you said earlier. I, I was listening to a I was listening to a fascinating episode of a podcast a couple of years ago uh, with an oncologist who was who was doing who, who was doing exactly what you um, what you mentioned there. He was looking to um, um, the use of pesticides in agriculture as a, as a way of as a way of looking at how to not go about cancer treatment drugs mm. because of the resistance that is that comes about if you are to spray something with a broad with something that is really broad um something that and that you are potentially making the cancer harder to defeat by using certain mm -hmm. treatments um and to go down that road of being much more about much more targeted um so I, I found that really fascinating um but the other thing that i wanted to say was just that like just this conversation is so incredibly helpful i think for anybody out there who is dealing with a cancer diagnosis or has somebody in their life that is dealing with a cancer diagnosis to be able to raise a question to their physician, to their mm -hmm. oncologist to say like, you know, what, you know, these treatments that I'm on or these treatments that I am being prescribed or I'm about to take, like, what are, like, are there any genetic components to these, to, to these treatments that need to be considered before yeah. I am starting these treatments? Like just that one question could be life changing. And I just, I, it just strikes me as like something very small that has a very profound impact and, mm -hmm. and like very mm -hmm. grateful to be able to, to be able to have that conversation and to be able to like put it out there for people to, mm -hmm. to learn from and understand. And I would add like, you know, if any of you are chess players and you talked about Sudoku playing, you're always thinking about your next move and your next mm -hmm. move. And especially with a chronic cancer, because none of it's curative, you're going to need a next move and you're going to need a move after that. So you want to be thinking about that. So does this therapy doctor make it harder for me to have my next treatment? You want to get your best therapy first, but you want to have a second therapy lined up because odds are you're going to need it. You know, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll get a 20-year remission out of one therapy. 
you know, and die, you know, of something else. But most people need therapies. You know, I have, I was talking to a friend the other day, he's on his 11th therapy for his CLL. He's had it for 20 something years. Yeah. I, I wanted to um, ask one, one more question before we wrap up um, about, I know we've used the word uh, cured or curative or curable uh, quite a bit. And, and I've always been confused about where we're at with this, like, quote unquote, cancer cure. Um, because like the way that I see my, my mom, um, she had, she was diagnosed with bladder cancer like seven years ago, went through her treatment and her cancer has been in remission and her cancer is quote unquote treated, but nobody would tell her that she is cured. But I've always wondered about this from like a, like the mental health perspective, like it might be nice for her to hear that she's cured. And then if cancer comes back, then it's a new cancer diagnosis. Like why? what do you think about using the word cured? The do doctors are hesitant to word, use the word cure, the C word, you know, it's the other C word that we don't use cure yeah. uh, because until we know for certain that it's not coming back. So, you know, I've known people with other blood cancers who've been cancer free for a dozen years and it comes back. And when you do a genetic analysis, when you do a deep genetic analysis, like Taylor was talking about, it's the same cancer that came back. It's not like a new myeloma that they've got. It's the same myeloma that they had 12 years ago. Now, we're starting to whisper about cures in CLL. There are some people with chemotherapy that are 12, 13 years out who have no evidence of disease, even when you look down to one in a million cells with deep gene sequencing. We can't find it. It's starting to smell like a cure. So we're starting to talk about that. And some people who've had transplants, and there's some cellular therapies. We didn't talk about CAR-T or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells, which is a whole other topic we don't have time to get into at the end here. But so there are some things that look like they potentially could be curative for some people. But we don't, doctors, you know, we, we, we make our living thinking of worst case scenarios. We don't, you know, we want to be optimistic to our patients and tell them, but we don't want to over-promise, you know, we want to over-deliver. So if we start talking about cure and it's not curative, then people are going to be disappointed. So in, when you live in this land of remission, you're absolutely right. Every time you go for a blood test, every time your, your mother goes for a scan or for a cystoscopy where they look at the bladder, she's holding her breath till she gets the path reports back or whatnot. Is it back? Is it there? And it's the same with me. Anytime I go for a blood test, you know, what's happening? Is my, are my counts climbing again? Every time I get a lymph node exam or the glands growing again, or I get a scan or whatnot. So absolutely, you live in this area of frightened, of being frightened of going. But if you can and forget about it, if you're only getting the blood test every three months or six months, or if the disease is growing very slowly a year, <laughs> and the rest of the time, just being who you are and just get anxious the day before the doctor's visit and the week after while you're waiting for the results. You know, um, we don't always get that luxury, but, you know, but it, I think you have to live with that because if you promise people a cure and it's not a cure, the crushing mm. of that, you know, I mean, I will tell you as a patient, when I get these therapies, I'm hoping every one of them, I'm hoping that I'm beating the odds. I've beaten the odds, but I'm hoping, yeah, seven years, that's nice but I would have preferred 20, yeah. you know, you know, I, I'd much prefer that these things were potentially curative. Mm -hmm. And especially when there's another funny thing. And 
And all drugs are great when they're new. So when these drugs all come out at new, nobody's been on it for long enough to know when it stops working. So when they first come out, when I started on my drug, nobody was relapsing, you know, for the first year, two years, you know, but then we found out people started relapsing three, four, five years, you know. So it was like, but at the beginning, it was like, oh my God, is this curative? You know, maybe, Mm. you know, you know, and then we find out now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That happens a lot. All these drugs are great when they're new, but when they've been around for a while, you find out about all the Mm -hmm. adverse events that are associated side effects is what patient calls adverse events. It's, you know, so yeah, yeah, I'm hesitant about the word. So I'm going to be on the doctor's side on that one about the word cure. Yeah. I understand the emotional advantages to it, but Mm -hmm. I, I, it takes a lot for me to say you're cured. It's funny because like I, you know, doing this, the show, I, I get friends all the time sending me like uh, news headlines, like, uh, like the newest cancer cure. And like the, it seems like the media always runs with these ideas of like a cure is finally oh, here. Yeah. But I feel time. like it's so, it's such a nuanced thing. Like in some ways there are these things that look and feel like, like cancer is cured um, and treatments that are as effective as, you know, what you might call it a cure. But at the same time, you know, there's not like a, a silver, perfect silver bullet. That's like, this is the be all end all cure for the cancer. The media type of loves the word cure. Yeah. Loves yeah. it. Yeah. Among yeah. many other words. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brian. In the sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Can be cured. Absolutely can be cured. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I, th- this has been a real eye opening conversation. We really appreciate you taking time of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. If if people want to get more information on what CLL Society are up to, um, how can they how can they get involved? How can they they kind of keep an eye on on the work that you guys are doing? Sure. So we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, um, and uh, like I say, we focus on the four pillars of our organization: our uh, support, education. Uh, policy and advocacy and funding research to go for cures, to go for uh, curative therapies down the line, and also to reconstitute our immune system and other deal with other complications of CLL. So CLLsociety.org, it's easy to find us, all one word, CLLsociety.org, because we're a nonprofit. Take a look there. Um, uh, join one of our support groups. Um, they can reach out to me uh, personally. I'm really accessible through the website. I'm kind of all over the internet. So, um, and we're we're there to help. Mm. You know, but I also say if you have a different kind of cancer, you know, a solid tumor cancer or something like that, there are organizations like our organization, and you know, meet with other patients. You know, there's things that when a patient meets me, and they see how I look and I've had this aggressive cancer for 17 years, it's like, like you talked about right at the beginning, uh, Taylor, I think it was, it's like, oh, I'm not going to die. Look at him. He's 17 years out. He's had this. He looks pretty healthy. You know, if I didn't know he had cancer, I'd never know that that he had CLL, you know? Yeah, you look great. (laughs) Thank you. Say to another patient that a doc, you know, doctor say, oh, you'll be fine. It's a good cancer. It's slow growing, you know, and people, don't ever say that to a patient. Mm-hmm. Don't use the word good and cancer in the same sentence ever. But so there, the CLL Society is there to provide you with other people. We provide free expert consults. So let's say you are in a rural community. Let's say you don't have access. We provide free consults with top doctors from like MD Anderson or Dana Farber or, you know, the top CLL centers across the country. Um, we provide free consults with these people for 
for free. You know, they will review their medical records and give them a consult, talk with their local hematologist about what's going on. So you can get that expert care. Mm. So, you know, reach out and other organizations uh, and other blood cancers and in solid tumors are there to help you too. So you don't have to go this alone, you know, build your support network um, and uh, become more expert, you know, become a smart patient, understand that you're going to have to make difficult decisions, understand that you're not going to get everything right and understand that you're bigger than your cancer. And, uh, you know, the CLL Society and other nonprofits are there to help. And I will act, put my cup out. We are a nonprofit. So if you want to help somebody, if you've got some spare change jingling in your pocket or you've got services that you can offer, you know, please reach out to us, clsociety.org for a tax deductible uh, donation. That's our lifeblood is we're dependent on uh, people um, supporting us. Um, uh, you know, uh, we're there for your long life. Be there for our long life. We mm. like to- mm. Amazing. Well, Brian, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. Thank you for this opportunity. And you guys were great. I've never had so much fun in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> we hear it all the time. <laughs> That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sickboy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.